Welcome, this is Suzanne Toro, and I would like to thank you for joining us today. We have Jack Andrews with us, and we are going to explore the Lost City of the Dead, which is located in the Grand Canyon. We were connected somewhat serendipitously, and he will share his journey since 1971 as he's hiked the Grand Canyon 21 times in search of the answers behind this mysterious location. Sit back and enjoy. I just um, I just uh, protect the Hopi, you know, pretty much what's going on. Because there are a lot of people that would um, rush there and probably trample the site, you know. And it's in a real delicate area. Right. Ecologically, you know. You know. Yeah. And also it's a sacred area to the Hopi. Definitely. Well, it feels very protected. So I, I think the cosmos has a way of handling those things. Sure, yeah. Just by its sheer, um, you know, it's so remote, it's protected in that regard. I haven't actually been to the cave, you know. I've just been above it, what I think is the cave. Right. I'm not absolutely certain I'm there, but I'm pretty certain, pretty sure because of what Kincaid said and what I know about the Grand Canyon, you know, from hiking in there and everything. And all your research. So tell me, did you grow up in Tucson? Um, I'm, I've been here for uh, since about uh, 1980. Yeah, and then I grew up in Chicago, outside of Chicago. So you said in 71, the Grand Canyon came to you. Yeah, I had a dream vision of it. Mm-hmm. And then, is that when you first hiked it? or? Yeah, that is about when I first hiked it. And um, I didn't go looking for the cave, I just went there because I thought, I, I, had, uh, I was hitchhiking around the United States for like five years. I lived out in, pretty much out in nature. And um, I ended up at the Grand Canyon. And I looked down in there, and I just thought, wow, I really have to go down there, you know. Mm. The first thing I thought of when I went there. So I ended up hiking it about 21 times. Wow. You mentioned that you saw it in a dream, but then your great-great-grandmother is an integral... No, no. Uh, What I I said there, and I should have explained that better, is that um, my great-great-grandmother is Shawnee. And so I think that may have played a role in uh, some of the heritage in the dream vision. Okay. Yeah. And uh, uh, Kincaid is um, he's a pretty elusive guy, you know, the guy who found it. But I do think he's, he was real, and I think the cave for sure is a real place. Right. And when you talk about Kincaid's journey, I mean, and as it's reported... What has been revealed to you, like in the renderings that you've done on your website uh, with the caves and the different rooms or chambers, how did all of that come to you, aside from maybe what was reported? Uh, Through what was reported and just um, an intuitive sense of what it looked like. Okay. Because uh, when when he was describing it, I, I felt like I had been in there, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a past life or what, but they, it just may be a, a real intuitive sense for what the uh, because I know the Grand Canyon so well. Right. What do the caves represent? Uh, it represents um, a lot of things. Uh, the Hopi underworld. Yeah, I think it's the uh, actual fact behind the what has become a myth. You know to a lot of people, but I think it's the actual the actual place where they were living, you know, and it's very mysterious, and um, 
there's there are some uh, there are canals up on the top that look like canals, but I haven't I have to look into more. They could have supported a lot of people and in, in cr with crops and things. So I think in other words, I think it was a real place, and I think it might actually be um, related to Buddhists or pre-Buddhists. You know, it's a real um, strange place. I think it might be very ancient. So what I, I know what you're asking, and what I think it represents to me is that. Uh, for some reason, I had a role in in finding the place, and there's still a little bit more in, in uh, actually pinpointing it. But once I pinpoint it, I'm not certain what the next step is, except maybe to talk to the Hopi. This is quite the journey. Have you been in conversation with the Hopi, or what has been your uh, relationship with them? Uh, not much. One time, uh, I went to a rainbow gathering, and Grandfather David was there, and um, we connected. Uh, visually, and then later on, I went to the to the Hopi mesas, and this was like about um, must have been about 1975 or so, 79, 75, 76, and um, they still had the old gas pumps up there that you know were graduated. <laughs> In other words, you could see the glass bell and the lines on it. It was really a, a while back, and I was sitting there, um, uh, and they had a a, a uh, Ceremony, a, a crop planting ceremony, and there and all this what they so-called whites. You know, I don't really like that term, but that but that uh, were asked to leave. And I turned around. I felt somebody looking at me. I turned around. It was Grandfather David, and he just smiled at me. And I just <laughs> stayed there. They didn't say a word to me, but I had feathers in my hair and a Guatemalan, you know, shirt on, and I was pretty wild back then. Hmm. So. The significance of that ceremony. I mean, I find it interesting when we're called. Well, if you're called or you end up on the Hopi reservation, because it literally is in the middle of nowhere, so it's not a, a place that you you have to have the intention or the draw to go there. It, within that ceremony, if you can share a little bit about what occurred for you, and being that it was the rainbow ceremony. Right. I, I felt like I had gone back. It wasn't the rainbow ceremony up on the mesas, but I felt like I had gone back 3,000 years and was. Uh, I couldn't see a car. You couldn't see a car or any sign of civilization right where they were doing the dance. And they were they were painted red, and it was just uh, they had turtles, tortoise shells on their feet. And I, and, uh, I also thought, well, this is, must be, the reason I'm seeing this must be related to Masau because he was the... Um, the God that led them out of the underworld mm -hmm. and up the sides of the canyon gradually as they built their their um, places up on the sides of the canyon, small little places, and then uh, up to the Hopi land and taught them how to grow corn. And so this is a spring planting ceremony, so I thought, well, it, it must be directly related to that. And that's why they want me to see it. You know, The universe wants me to see this. You mentioned you had another experience connecting with that story. Was that at the Grand Canyon also, or was that there at that ceremony at the Hopi? When the uh, the circles appeared? Uh-huh. That was on the rim. That was later on. That okay. Was probably, that was probably, um, let me think here, in the, it's 2007 now, so that must have been about 99 or 2000. Or a little later, when you know, I, I don't. Uh, I know it sounds funny, but I don't keep track of time that much. Right. But uh, I understand. Yeah, we went up there and uh, we we drove to the area where we thought the cave was through research, and 
it was the, the wind was ferocious. I mean, it was blowing about, um, and that's important too. It was blowing about, I don't know, it must have been 50 miles an hour, you know. And we were afraid that the the door was going to blow off the car and everything. And so we got out of the car and and uh, and I, he walked over like two seconds later. He walked over and said, "Wow, you got to come and look at this." And um, there was an a big anthill that was a they're like carpenter ants mm -hmm. so the the anthill had suddenly had these spirals appear on it and it's on on the website did you see the photo of it yes oh it no i didn't see actually that picture yeah i, I took a photo of it and um it, it and the interesting thing is that all the other anthills around it the, the wind had blown them they were worn down smooth from the wind because they're large granules you know mm -hmm. sand but large, you know, like, and um, it was really kind of impossible for that to um, be there, but it was there, and um, it was a spiral, and it also looked like a, um, which is represents the footprint of Masau. He said that he would leave his f footprints in the hills and the valleys in that area, and it also is a um, is an underground maze symbol. So we thought there was well two verifications that we were at the right spot, you know, and. Um, Later on, I contacted a shaman up in uh, in where is he? He's up in Idaho because of um, the, his connection with Kincaid. He had talked to an old man who actually talked to Kincaid uh, years ago. So that's another reason I know he's real. And he, he this guy grew up with um, his dad was a cattle rancher, and he grew up and was sort of um, given the title of a shaman. This Randell person up there, and he. Um, he said that he talked to the to one of the shaman tribes up there about the ant hill and what had happened, and, and he told them that when the ants do that, when they create a symbol like that, they they actually they urinate in the sand to glue it together. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's so, very interesting. So it'll hold together, and you know, if the winds are or something, that was definitely a, a sign. I mean, if you look at it, you can see it. It's you know, you're out in the middle of nowhere, and there's suddenly concentric circles in the top of an ant hill. Correct. <laughs> Definitely. And, oh, and then we took a stick and tried to draw circles in another anthill. And you couldn't do it. They would collapse on themselves. It's a little gift. And you also meant, mentioned seeing or witnessing... Stick figure. ...coming up the canyon wall. We went How going down. We, going were down. Okay. we were sitting in the rim because um, uh, this huge rainstorm... Well, we were camped in what I think was an um, ancient cornfield. We didn't know it when we put the tent up. But we walked over. It was a it was a natural depression that the rain settled in, and um, as we walked and cleared out, and as we walked over, what followed a trail over there was a, actually a little ruin under the rim. It was you know basically untouched, and Steve went over and into it, and um, there were still little pieces of the small you know the small ancient corn. It's only like three inches tall. Right. Where there were some of it was lying in there, and then there were. Um, which we didn't touch, and they were around. Uh, there, I mean, there were pieces of um, red uh, ochre that they used to color pots, like they had just left it, you know. And so we followed the trail back, and later on figured out that, that must have been their cornfield because the rain settled there naturally. And um, it's it started storming like crazy, and and that started to fill up with water. So we pulled. The, we had a four wheel drive that we pulled down onto a higher spot where the rocks were harder. So it wouldn't sink into the mud. And as we were sit sitting there, um, I was looking out the window, and this big, giant stick figure, about 12 feet tall, just 
It was kind of a, a reddish color. Mm-hmm. It had three spikes coming out of its head, which it, it, they've seen. Uh, there's there are paintings on the walls in the Grand Canyon. Like that. He came running over the our canyon and straight down the wall and just turned like at a 90 degree angle and ran straight down the wall. And I yelled out, did you see that? And he said, no, I was looking away. <laughs> you were you were oh. definitely being communicated to. Yeah. And so that location, without revealing it, obviously, to protect its, its sacredness, at that point, I mean, have you gone back to that site, that location? No. No. Um, if you feel I need to, I will. There's another location near there where um, uh, a doctor's uh, son, there's a, a doctor on the Hopi Reservation years ago that had a son that used to play on the rim, and he just contacted me out of nowhere and said that, um, you know how the story says there were there must have been an uh, entrance at the rim because there, were, there was moon blowing through the cave? Mm-hmm. They thought that, he said he used to play at a spot near there, and he, he told me where it was, where there were... Um, Two openings in the ground, and the wind it used to breathe, you know. And he, so he knew that it connected to the side of the canyon because of, to a cave, because it would breathe, and you could you could hear the you could feel the a wind come in and out, you know. So he, I think what he discovered was probably the upper e- entrance to it. Reading the story about Kincaid in this boat in the Grand Canyon, which is so massive, <laughs> by himself. How do you connect with that? Have been kind of energetically connecting to, I guess, him or that story. Uh, what do you think his role in all of this was? Even though he was hired, I guess, by the Smithsonian. He was hired. Well, he was and he wasn't. I mean, it's not. That's not real clear. But um, I think his role was he, what he said he was doing. He was out looking for mineral. Mm-hmm. He was a uh, in the 1890s and. And up until about 1910, they, uh, there were people mining in the Grand Canyon. Just not mining, but uh, solo prospectors. Because mm-hmm. they had thought that there was gold in what they called, um, what do they call them, brecciated pipes. That's, that basically means broken rock where uh, water would seep down through the, through the uh, caves and things and, and create a, like a sort of a tube and then it would collapse by its own weight from all the, the water would um, work out the dirt, and the, the heavier rock on top would just collapse, and and it would also leach minerals down to the all the way down to the river near the river, and so they were going in and, and looking for small amounts of gold, not enough for a, a company to go in there and mine, but enough for a solo prospector to make a little money. Right. They go in, and they were doing that in the 1890s, and that's what I think he was doing, and he was. Um, he, and the, his connection with the Smithsonian was they said that uh, that he, how did they put it? They said that he um, they didn't exactly say he worked for him, but they I think he was like what you would call someone that worked um, without a written contract. In other words, he would go out and maybe find, because they were doing a lot of looting back then. And so he was out looking, and not necessarily doing that, but he could have been, and um, looking for mineral, and he saw that stain on the side of the, sediment and then just pulled over and climbed up and and uh, found the steps in the cave and but I think his role in the story what you're asking is to um, the reason I think it was just to bring it public so it would be discovered later on by me and a few other people to uh, when the Hopi needed it to be uh, to um, 
connect the east and the west in a sense. You know, you mentioned in an email to me that, you know, it may not be about going to the caves and if in fact those that are connected to the caves start to remember, do you feel that in itself might be what's necessary to open up the portals? You know, obviously the the 3D man or woman might think of, oh, let's go and pull apart and try to put together the story. But if you ha if these individuals might have that deep connection with this location, do you feel that might be enough? I think that Kimberly is definitely a part of the story, and, and that was predicted. Um, in a remote viewing session, there was a group of people who contacted me that said that years ago they had discovered the story and took it as far as they could, and they said that I, I had taken it farther than anyone had since then, mm -hmm. and that um, they even approached Hollywood to make a movie with it. You know, they were more oriented like that, and they didn't have enough information on it, and um, they said that they contacted some remote viewers, right? And um, the remote viewers said that the woman who would find the tablet, even if symbolically, would be a, a woman of mixed blood, right? Was the, was the term, and that's what Kimberly is, you know. And and uh, they came to her. I mean, she didn't really go to them. They came to her, you know, and said, uh, talked about the tablet that she discovered. Now I don't know if if um, if there's there's going to be an actual tablet also, as opposed to the symbolic tablet she found. Mm -hmm. Do you know about that? Well, I know I actually wrote this down because um, what she had written, how she, the caves had come to her, and she mentioned the woman of mixed blood would help the missing portion of the sacred tablets, but play an instrumental role in finding the the cave and the meaning of the artifacts as they relate to the Hopi. Right. My question to you was mainly going to be, you know, do you feel is the significance of the female revealing the truths of the cave and finding the sacred tablet, Hopi tablets? Wake up the Hopi from something they almost forgot, okay. that, that the cave could actually be there. In other words, they, have, they had thought of it mythologically for so long that I don't think that they actually got to a point where they believed that it was a real place for a while. And I think her connection with me was to 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 um to sort of tell the Hopi it was a real place because when she did tell them about it that I knew basically where it was they got all excited about it you know because they had been thinking of it they knew they uh, came from an underworld somewhere in the vicinity of the Grand Canyon but they didn't know exactly where you know and the the rest of uh, what's going on with me is that I'm very close to. Uh, finding a list of the artifacts. That's that's as much as I'll say about that. Well, so when Kincaid went in, they did remove artifacts. No, I don't think so. I don't okay. think they did. Okay. I think what I think what happened is Kincaid uh, Kincaid made one trip to the cave with them because if you read the article carefully, you can you can see this that um they said that they wanted to increase the party to um 50 or more or something they say in the article, a larger party and string electrical wires. So uh, all that had happened at that point was I think he took a, probably about five people down there. And I know who one of them is, I think. And that's another thing I won't say yet. But I, I think I know who one of them was. And um, he took them down there, and they, they looked at this thing, and oh, wow, and got all excited about it. And then Kincaid went, in the meantime, he came all the way through the canyon and uh, sent some artifacts back to the Smithsonian from Yuma, Arizona, you know. 
he, uh, there was a later article found. Did you see that on my site? That verified that he did go down to Yuma. It, it was, in other words, the article was earlier than the article that came out. Oh no, I didn't see that one. Yeah, and it said, "Gee, it's just a little tiny Yuma report that said G. E. Kincaid of Idaho arrived in." Oh, I think I did. I couldn't read it though. I mean, it's a little teeny teeny. Yeah, I think I translated. I might have liked it, but he arrived in Yuma and had several artifacts from a trip to the Grand Canyon. Said the most interesting thing about his whole trip was uh, artifacts, and also that he went through the sluices at the new Laguna Dam, which is a verification because in 1908 Laguna Dam was built over there by um, by Yuma. I found out later, okay. and so that's that's perfect verification. And uh, he sent these artifacts back to um, to uh, the Smithsonian, supposedly to Washington. That's all he said, though he didn't, never did say the Smithsonian. He said Washington, and um, and then I think Kincaid went from there back up to Idaho. And this I got from a, a psychic I was dealing with up in uh, Utah. There's a psychic up there that's a really good one, and she said she got Kincaid's grave, even the location of his grave. Where it should be, but it's not marked by the by a river in in Idaho by Lewiston where he grew up, hmm. and I think he died there in some kind of a river trip or accident right then, and then that's why it got quiet because they didn't know how to get back to it because that particular area has some um, buttes to come out and go in and out that look identical you know, okay. for, for a stretch of maybe three or uh, maybe seven or eight miles actually even more like ten miles. And they just <laughs> had no idea how to get back to it, you know. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so that would be. So I think it's untouched. The sacred area, because that was my next question: is you know why wouldn't they go back? But that's the perfect answer. You know the question how. I was thinking. <laughs> and. Or, or they had an accident on the river themselves. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't to be discovered. No, they couldn't find it, so they just gave up on it because. Um, you know, uh, the Grand Canyon, even now, you see what happened to me in, in 1971. I, w I was hiking down on a trail. It's a well-known trail called, uh, I mean, the Hermit Trail over across the Tunnel Trail and up the Bright Angel Trail. It's about 30 miles. And I went around to Butte, and I accidentally set my camera down on a rock, went all the way around to Butte and came, uh, one or two Buttes and came back. Just thought, oh, man, I left my camera on a rock. and went back there by myself and kind of freaked out because it's scary down there by yourself. It's all right when you're talking to people when you're yourself. It's a really powerful place. Right. And uh, I couldn't find it. I went, uh, and then I finally found it after going by three or four buttes, and I thought I had only gone by two buttes. So you see right there, you know, and that's 1971. And this is back in 1908, and they hadn't even mapped that area. They mapped right. it once, but it was inaccurate, you know, where, in other words, where you have a real detailed um, topo line. Back then it was smooth, you know, and the mileages were off. You know. But they were they were close enough to be able to pinpoint the cave from Kincaid's description. Uh, not pinpoint it, but get within about um, three miles, which yeah. is which can be three thousand miles in the Grand Canyon. Right, <laughs> exactly. And have you ever taken a helicopter ride over that area? You can't. You're it's not allowed. Illegal. It's illegal. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Uh, you can't fly below the rim in the canyon, and you can't fly in certain areas at all, and that's one area you can't fly. So, in fact, a friend of mine, the friend I was talking about that I went to the canyon with, mm -hmm. he's a pilot, and what he was trying, he was 
thinking of doing was um, flying his plane. Uh, you can fly it at 10,000 feet. You can't go any lower than that, mm-hmm. which is 5,000 feet above the rim. And and he was going to just fake like he was having a uh, <laughs> like his engine go out, you know, right. and then zoom down and go, oh, my God, you know, and then snap pictures. And then, <laughs> oh, I'm okay now, you know. But he never <laughs> did it. That was his idea. And we even <laughs> thought of taking small remote planes over there, you know. Right. But even that wouldn't work because as soon as I got below the rim, they'd just die, you know, take them, you know. Share a little bit about the the significance in mythological terms of for the Hopis of the underworld and how they were led out of that underworld and when it was to be revealed again. There were four worlds. There were uh, what they call the one hearts and the two hearts. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, Two hearts were the evil ones, and they think a lot of people speculate that those were reptilians. You know, when when they you know when they go on the talk about the UFO stuff, and, and the only reason UFOs came into the whole Grand Canyon story was because they said that there was a strange metal piece of metal they found in the caves that resembled platinum, but they hadn't identified it. You know, right. which is kind of kind of interesting. That. Yeah, and. Um, so they were basically the Hopi call them, I think, the ant people, and that's another or a significance of the ant hill too. I think that um, I think they were the good ones that helped them out. I'm still a little foggy on that because I haven't. It's been a while since I looked into that. And but they were there were the two hearts and the one hearts, and the two hearts basically chased them out. Uh, they had a big, they sort of a battle down there, and they chased them out through the Sipapu. You know about the Sipapuni? Mm-hmm. The the emergence area. Right. It's up uh, the Little Colorado River, about seven miles from uh, down at the bottom of the Salt Trail. Right. And the Salt Trail on top of the Salt Trail has the, uh, the Hopi Clan Rock, where the the famous rock that lists all the clans, and they've been going down until 1912. They've been making pilgrimages, pilgrimages down to the to uh, by the uh, Emergence Sipapu, which you can still see on the Google map. And then over to the Hopi salt mines, which I've actually seen on a river trip that I hitched a ride on. And and they're not very big. They're only like a small cave about um, 15 feet by 8 feet tall where the salt occurs. It's very, it's tiny, but it's sacred. They won't let anyone go there now. And and I, I was able to go to it back then because they hadn't made the rule yet. We didn't go into it, but we took the boat right next to it, you know, we were looking at it. So the connection is that um, they say that they came out of the Grand Canyon in the Sipapuni, right? That uh, his name was, I think, um, M-A-C-H-E-T-O, Machetto, pushed a, a, a tree root up through the Sipapuni and escaped uh, from the uh, Two Hearts. That's where they say they emerged. And they, it's possible they could have, but, I mean, like if they were taking a escape route, you know? Right. I, but there's water in there, you know. That's the thing that's a little bit of a problem. But I mean, I suppose if you could swim a little distance and come up, you know, like you see, you'll see that done in the movies sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but the actual cave is around the corner from that by a few miles. You know, okay. it's it's not right at the Sipapuni. You got to go down the co- Little Colorado. This won't even this won't get anyone there. So, you have to go down the Little Colorado, turn right, and go several miles down there. Right. To find it, and so, um, in other words, the significance. I know what you're getting at. You're trying to tie the whole story together, in a sense. 
um, the significance is to me that um, the Hopi had, the main thing to me is that the Hopi forgot the actual location of their ancient, and didn't forget it, I mean, they were such ancient, ancient ancestors that they, it probably just got lost over time, you know, the actual location behind what became a myth. And and uh, I still have to find, you mentioned artifacts, see, that's important because I still think I'm going to find a list of the artifacts. There's a way to get a list of the artifacts, but I have to do some, uh, a lot of, a whole lot of looking through a lot of papers. Mm. Know, yeah, where they were distributed from. I have to actually go do that, you know. Yeah. And you said that he, Kincaid went to Yuma and then sent them potentially to Smithsonian in Washington? or Sent some artifacts to Washington, D.C. You know. Okay. He, he said he gathered some artifacts and 700 photos. So there's still 700 photos unless they disappeared out there somewhere. And I think I know where those are, too. And the person who has it is um, afraid to, um, she, he has an artifact that he took back up to Idaho. That's what I would say as far as I on that. And she doesn't want to let the world know about it that much because her house was broken into. Somebody tried to steal it, you know. Hmm. So, and that's dangerous, you know, if they're doing that. Right. And so... um. Is where he was near Boise, Idaho, or where exactly? Lewiston. Lewiston, Idaho is where he was born. Okay. And your reference of Anasazi, the Buddha, Egyptian reference, the connectivity to many other places on the pl on this planet as we perceive them seems to be housed in these caves. Uh, yeah, they said, what they said uh, was that uh, in the end, they said that it most closely resembles the um, uh, religion of Tibet is what they said in the end. They mentioned, in other words, they mentioned Egyptian, they mentioned uh, didn't they, uh, another one, but they said in the end that they clo most closely resembled the ancient religion of Tibet. And I think that's true because they, my uh, my wife Susan actually found a connection with the um, Guruji Kingdom up in uh, northern India. Mm -hmm which was a Tibetan community where they had tunnels. And in the tunnels around the village, there were these um, stones embedded in the ceiling that had faces carved on them, right? Like Buddha-type faces. Right. Over the centuries, they fell onto the floor. And, and in the story, if you remember in the Grand Canyon cave story, this is all on the website, too. Right. That, uh, they said that they called it uh, stones carved with the head of the melee type because they said things differently back then. Right. Not so politically correct, and um, that connects to what she found, you know. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, there was always that term like digging to China. I I actually landed in Tucson as a child, and I spent a lot of time wanting to get <laughs> to Tibet from Tucson. Uh, yeah. And so I, I used to I con my friend into digging with me. And the, t the the tunnel system and the center component beyond what would be what appears to be the tomb filled with the Anasazi or the Hopi warriors. Uh, what do you feel is the significance of these tunnels, and where are they connecting to? I don't know. I think that uh, the uh, what they call the warriors barracks is a term they used, but you know that's just what they used. 
I, I know that uh, what I've been looking into is um, maybe you know I know uh, there was uh, broken copper swords. If that what I had wanted to ask Kimberly and I never got around to asking her was if broken copper swords somehow relate to to Buddhists or Tibetan priests up in a remote area possibly you know because you know this cave is very similar to a lot of Buddhist caves that were found in China for one mm -hmm. and and in Tibet that were very remote and carved into the carved into the rock like this cave you know. So there are examples of this type of thing in the world. You know, the two exist. Remote caves, uh, Buddhist monasteries carved right in the rock in mm. China and in Tibet. Yes. Mm. So, um, as I was saying, the significance of the tunnels, I think that relates, that's just the underworld, you know, and that's actually, in other words, to me, my role is that this is a real place that was behind the, the myth, the so-called myth. You know? So-called myth. I don't mean to call it a myth because I don't like to call it a myth because, um, you know, scientists will turn, whenever they can't explain something about ancient people, they'll say, well, it's mythological, you know. That's, in other words, that's the way I see it. Right. I mean, maybe that's a prejudiced view, but that's what I, they, and whenever they can't explain, you know, they, well, this is mysticism and myth, you know, and, they, you know, and so I think that what they would consider a myth or mysticism, this is the actual place, and that the, and I do think the Hopi may have forgotten where it actually was, you know. You mentioned, you know, this the, down the sheer wall, and again, not going too much into the exact location. Uh, mm -hmm. For me personally, lately, a lot more lately, I've been really drawn down to the base. And I do remember, and at, reading through your stuff, it was kind of like, oh, you know, I remember my uncle taking a trip down to Phantom Ranch, and you mentioned that, um, mm -hmm. and then the Isis Temple and the different, I don't know, uh, reflections of parts of Egypt right there in the Grand Canyon. The names, yeah. Do you sense that maybe these caves are actually part of an energetic grid that link all these places together on this planet? Kind of yeah, I do. Kind of like because a network. <laughs> I do because there are a couple of things. Um, one is um, I met a, a man from Texas uh, years ago who um, contacted me. He was getting older and he said that he had in, he had invented this. Uh, it was a machine that the that um, the big oil companies were using to. Um, what it did was it it bounced. Uh, I don't know if it's radon or what. He was using measuring radon or something. In other words, he could the machine could measure an, a gas that emits from caves, right? From and basically from oil deposits and empty caverns, back up where he could draw a, literally a sort of an underground picture of what was there. And he was using this with the, the major oil companies. And he said, I, I, now I'm retired and it might be interesting to take this machine. He said, four people have to handle it, one on each handle, and we walk a grid along where the cave might be. And it could probably read what was underground, you know. And I told him, well, this is supposed to be 1,400 some feet underground. He said, that's about the limit of the machine. But if we could walk it, and then it turned out that the area there is like has lots of bushes, you know. They're like um, brittle bush and stuff. These these real tough desert, uh, about three feet tall, and it would be impossible to carry us, you know, hand carry the machine. So in other words, and the reason I mentioned him is he said that he had had a theory that from uh, going out to all these places, all the way from Texas to um, Arizona and all the way up across the entire West, uh, helping the oil companies find oil that he had discovered what he, he was putting down in his own 
journals, uh, uh, tunnels that linked, and caves that linked all the way, all over the West, you know. And uh, pretty much uh, cavers will tell you that there are basically caves everywhere, you know, and then particularly at the Grand Canyon. And and so some people have suggested that this cave, uh, where, where, it comes, where it comes out on the rim there, I know the geology of it, and there is a, what's called a, um, I know I'm giving you a lot of information at once, but there's there's a what's called a graben fault, mm-hmm. and a graben fault means grave in German, and it it's a spot where a section of land sinks down, a fault, and in other words, it's got a, a fault on both sides of it, like it, it's right there. I think it's about two or three miles. Right. And it dropped down in the center, and along the edge of it, water percolates, yeah, especially in uh, limestone there, like it is there, and starts to carve out caves. And it can carve out a straight walled cave along the edge of the fault if the fault is straight walled, you know. And that's what I think is actually the geology behind this. That they, I think the geology started the cave, then someone came in and, elab- and carved the rest of it. So they had a head start on a long cave that was uh, carved by nature, you know, and they just elaborated on it. But this fault and this cave goes through the Grand Canyon, and someone had suggested to me, they were showing me where. And I saw it when I was there, where the, it looked like it extended across the, the canyon, and you could see another opening on the other side of the canyon. You know, so yes, I think it's possible that it extends to a cave system, and I think that uh, there's probably a lot more going on in these cave systems that um, people realize. You know, tunnels, caves. There are all kinds of strange stories about um, things found in, in, you know, in different areas in these underground caves. Yeah, one one thing that often gets shown to me is um, <laughs> is the the infrastructure that is present below the mountains, and um, even when you're out on Hopi and you see the pyramid, that's you know maybe some people would call it a hill or a mound or a small mountain, but definitely feels like a pyramid, and um, <clears throat> the different structures that reveal themselves. Uh, what I'd like to do, if you're okay with this, is because I have to jump on another interview right right at 10 or right before. And so I wanted to see, one, if we can continue our conversation tomorrow morning, if that's possible. And then also, right now I feel like I'm supposed to share some of information with you so we can both set with that for the, okay. the next day, if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, Does that work with you? Are you recording this? or that's I am recording this. And um, are you going to use it somewhere? Or? Well, the, yeah, I'd like to put it together for um, basically a, a broadcast. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I can include or not include. Again, I, I'm totally wanting to uh, take care of the Hopis. They're very near and dear to my heart, as are the Tibetans. Right. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I'm... I'm you know, I think by the end of our series of conversations, we'll know how it's to be presented, <laughs> and yeah. maybe a little bit better understanding. Uh, well, I think you're well ingrained in your role, and that's why I wanted to share a little bit of information with you right now about me, and mm-hmm. then we'll we'll see how it comes out. Uh, typically, what I've been doing is, um, you know, there's my life is a series of events that are very serendipitous. And so there's always a story. So there's definitely a story that led me to you. So before what I'm doing now is I'm starting to tell the story of how she uh, 
came in contact with you <laughs> mm-hmm. or whoever it may be, and then um, sharing the story. And I think really what I would like to do is share the story of you and how you fell in love with the mystery of, you know, the underworld and the caves and the significance of that and what has kept you connected for this long to this story, Mm. if that's okay. Sure. Yeah, it's because I think it's real. Feels very real to me. <laughs> I mean, there are people that say they did say they think it isn't. You know. Right. But they didn't hike Grand Canyon 21 times. <laughs> no, they didn't. Well, that's my role. See, the details and the all the details of the story. In other words, the um, the uh, chapters of the story and have not been revealed yet. You know, and there's uh, more I have to research in order to find out the rest of the story because. The artifacts themselves will tell a lot, you know, about what's in there. And in that article in 1909, it's a vague description of the artifacts, but there's, uh, I might be able to find a list of the artifacts, and that's what I'm after, you know, plus more, you know. With the caves, you're going to continue your research and findings, and then you're in the process of writing a book? Yeah, but but I don't think I'm ever going to reveal, if I happen to find the exact location, uh-huh. Where, where I could say walk right to the cave. Right. I don't think I will reveal it because, with well, without talking to the Hopi first, you know. Right. They're, they would be my first consideration, and the Tibetans both, but mainly the Hopi because if it is uh, wh- what I think it is, the the actual story behind the actual place behind the myth, then it's their most sacred site. You know? Right. And you can't take that lightly, you know. It's it's their number one most sacred site, probably. There's the lands, Hopi lands themselves, you know. Who is in charge of that land without revealing anything right now? It's, it's in dispute. It's, in it's dispute. an interesting uh, situation because it's considered part of Grand Canyon National Park, but it's also considered part of the Navajo tribe, the Dene. Uh-huh. And, and, uh, but the actual section, for which comes from the, the, uh, the beach on the river, right, to the rim, is the actual section where the cave would be. Is a disputed. It's a disputed land. There's a book out called uh, I think what, I forget what the name of it is. It's called Disputed. Uh, I forget something like Disputed Territory or something like that. And I have it in my notes. And um, it, it, it what uh, they said if it ever went to court, the legal way it would come down is it, and it's not not good, but it's not bad either because it'll never happen. I don't think is that if the federal government wanted it for to build a dam, you know, or something like that, or control water. Right. They they would take eminent domain, you know, like they do with everything, you know, which I don't like. But I don't think that'll ever happen. I mean, people would be outraged. They they want to tear down, uh, you know, the dam that that flooded the Glen Canyon Dam, you know. But I don't think they'd ever allow that. So now you mentioned. I would like to ask you a little bit more about what the caves have revealed to you. In a like a more of a uh, spiritual basis, or uh, the way the way I would approach that is to say that. I feel that I'm the, um, for lack of a better word, you know, and without and without ego involvement, uh, sort of the Indiana Jones of this mm-hmm. story, and that my purpose is to um, get the details. Also, another part of my role is that I hiked the Grand Canyon 21 times, so I know that I know that Kincaid, when he says um, this is interesting, it's on my site, that he said that the cave was 42 miles up the river from a place called El Tavar Crystal Canyon, which is right. what what has fooled everyone because he combined 
two places, El Tovar, which could be referring to the hotel, and right. it could be referring to a butte. But Chris Kincaid, to me, feels like a very mystical creature. Have you gotten any more information on that? or? I talked to a person who had a friend who had uh, spoken to, supposedly to Kincaid himself, and he comes across as um, someone who probably supported himself uh, as a, a possible relic hunter with the Smithsonian and other in institutions, whoever would hire him, and also a, a prospector on his own. And he grew up in, in Lewiston, Idaho, and, that, and then that's where he got his experience in river running because there's there are two uh, real steep canyons and, and rivers right where he lived that he probably went down as a as a young young person, you know, and shot the rapids all the time. And uh, as far as his mystical um, mystical goes, I think he was, in my mind, he was just serving a purpose to um, bring out the story that later on was going to come out again and help the Hopi and help the world. Right. I think he was fulfilling a role, you know, just like all of us, possibly. He showed up at the right time to plant a seed. He was chosen. Exactly. With your abilities to connect, can you share with me what, just on an intuitive level, not just the concrete data that you've researched, has come through with you for you? It's on a real, real heart level, the meaning sure. behind... I think it's about, I think it's uh, partly about um, a sort of an all-faith thing, faith thing. In other words, um, they say that, it, that in the article that they thought it was Egyptian, Tibetan, and they used the word oriental back then. That meant, meant anything from, from east of um, the Middle East, they termed oriental. And um, I think what was going on in there is it might have been a, a sort of a um, mainly Buddhist um, temple, but also a place where there were maybe Egyptian influences. In other words, the, late, the, the, the canyon was probably full of water when it was in its biggest operation, and they came in on boats because Kincaid said that it, there were steps carved down to what looked like the level of the river when, uh, when the canyon was full. And we know that the canyon has, um, I know that the canyon has filled up several times in different areas due to various forms of flooding. One, lava dams, and the dating on the lava dams are um, controversial. And also just logs and things that would block it up and, and flood it for a hundred years, you know. Or rock falls right. would choke a canyon. So I think that this was probably a temple where um, it was a, probably like a multi-faith temple. And several people came in on boats and, um, and studied there and... Uh, meditated, whatever, and that uh, one of the groups, possibly the main group, ended up being the um, Hopi. You know. I'm wondering, just in the representation of the cave, is it all possible, or do you connect with this at all, that this was an actual portal, or is an actual portal, that delivers all these dimensions together, and, and in fact, those worlds, those underworlds, those space worlds, the Tibetan worlds, all together, and whatever influences decided to come in into that location. Yes, I do think so. I think that's a really, really good way to look at it. And once again, being the um, detail, practical type person with this cave, and also, but I am spiritual too, and I do see those links, Is I mean, big time, really, that uh, I was sitting on, the best way I can answer that is to say I was sitting on the rim one day, one day right above the cave with a friend of mine. In fact, it was the friend who called the other day 
and his brother. They're identical twins, and they're real. They're triple Sagittarians, so they're very adventurous. We go out all the. T- uh, we used to go out more than I do now, but we went out all the time hiking to just anywhere that looked interesting, you know. And so they wanted to go up to the cave area up above the cave. So we decided to go up there with with the other friend that was researching with me several years ago, and we were sitting. Um, I was sitting on the rim, and they were sitting around me, and we were at a campfire and uh, eating breakfast. And um, I was looking out at the at the Colorado Plateau. You know how it do you know how it slants geologically? It, it goes. It's taller on the north rim, about one thousand feet taller, and then it curves down to uh, the northern area of the of the. Um, it'd be uh, probably above the Navajo Reservation, mm-hmm. where it, it curves down a and the south rim is 1,000 feet lower. And then you see the Grand Canyon cut through the middle of it, and we all know that the Grand Canyon is a geological open book, you know? Right. So if you know anything about, um, you may or may not know about uh, uh, the uh, tectonic plates that they they do, the continental plates and things, they do several things. They, uh, like in California, is a slip fault. It's, it, if you put your hands together side by side, like touching your two index fingers, Right. And and you were to slide one one way. That's what that fault is doing. It's sliding. So that's why you see in the cornfields um, rows of of corn and or any field, and then you'll see them staggered. You know, like it's slipped. It's right. called a slip, slip fault. Then there are other faults that are called uh, subduction faults, and that's up in Oregon. There's the, I think the Juan de Fuca plate goes under the North American plate. Mm-hmm. It actually goes goes under it. Subduction, and a lot of these plates, like the subduction plates, rotate like a conveyor belt. That's a really good image. Uh, So I was looking at the Grand Canyon thinking, well, if you have this subduction stuff going on, which uh, you might have up there, I I know there's uh, drop faults, grommet faults, which would imply subduction, then you've got a conveyor belt. Say if you look at the edge of the canyon, you've got a conveyor belt grinding the top layer constantly under over billions of years, right? And I told Terry, I said, you know, if you think of the geology and, like, the the conveyor belt concept, why wouldn't it be possible for a civilization that was here billions of years ago to have ground its way so deep that we would never find it, you know? And I said the Grand Canyon would be the perfect place to expose those civilizations. And say you go down uh, 1,500 feet and there's a cave that you can calculate how many years back you are and and, and uh, depending on the artifacts, they may have dug that cave thousands, if not millions, of years ago. And and you can consult uh, Michael Cremo for this stuff. Do you know Michael Cremo? No, I don't. He, you look him up too. He's a uh, he's a Krishna. He's open about being a Krishna, and and he uh, has researched all these artifacts, like um, things, strange things that have occurred, like hammers inside of. Uh, you know, down at the bottom of a mine inside of a layer that it never should be in, like a hammer or right. a, or something that looks like a battery or something. You've seen that stuff. Well, that's the idea I was thinking about, and and so I was thinking that that it's possible that uh, all of this stuff has occurred. In other words, like you're saying, simultaneously over time, civilizations have risen to this great technological state that we think we're in, and and fallen. You know, probably. <laughs> Maybe hundreds of thousands of times on the planet, they could be. It could be that um, some of the scientists are wrong about, uh, you know, where when civilization started, and they're only looking at maybe our current civilization. Your impressions, the tomb or the, 
I forget the words you used, rendering with showing the quote-unquote maybe warriors uh, that have been entombed there. Which I modified again this year. And I know they said there's no real, or not that he found, obviously a, a huge excavation never was done, but when I enter that space just energetically or in meditation, it feels like a hall of records. And really mm -hmm. the idea of being male or female doesn't really even come into play. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what they had said male, I think it was just a uh, prejudice of the period myself. That's how I see that. that well, and it, it could make sense that we, even in our Western mind now, or our current state of mind, still attribute much to the male. A warrior barracks, would you would think male. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it, because when I, when I made this illustration here, uh, it, they're made in 3D, right? So what I have to do is actually create the actual room and the structure in 3D. It's virtual 3D, just like they do all the, the uh, CGI in, in films. And um, the room itself, I just did it with this room, the walls slanted out. It was interesting that when you go in there, it does sort of look like a, a library because you have all these things stacked on top of each other, you know? Yeah. They also said that they thought the civilizations, uh, they thought that the stuff on the bottom was cruder and the stuff up was more refined, and they interpreted that as meaning later state of civilization, the higher they went. Well, if someone built this as big as they describe it, then uh, it was built to last for a long time, you know? Yeah. I mean, 1,400, uh, like a, go more than a mile, that's 5,000 feet, into the wall. And that's not unheard of in Egypt. They went in great distances into the into the rock. Kincaid talked about the snaky room or area. Smell, yeah, in the room, one room. It seemed like it was a chamber. That's what it feels like, one distinct area. Um, but every, I don't know, that, that like, really draws me in, and I, I haven't spent more time just getting still with it. But what's beyond that feels like something that's about to be released. That has a connection, you know, with other stories that have been out there. Of, um, see, I mentioned, I go into this a little bit, but I don't, of reptilian underground thing. He seems to think there's some sort of a reptilian connection with this. Mm -hmm. Other people have suggested that, you know. And that could be really, that could be pointing to um, the uh, two hearts, you know. Definitely. Yeah. I think what it, what from my um, sort of everything I've, I've learned about it, I think it's, um, I think from the start, all of us were supposed to meet probably, and and figure out what this cave is about, including Grandfather Martin, you know. Right. And they would have a, quite a bit of knowledge about it, but they'd forgotten some things. Well, and I think just remembering with that cave that Maitreya came forward and was so prominent there, and that's all I could hear to tell Joe to welcome in. Kim's connection to feeling the compassion, which I really do feel that we're in a time where compassion will need to be given with a big heart because a lot of things are going to continue to be revealed to the planet. I think that that's good. And I think um, the Tibetans and the Hopi will have a, probably the most to say on all this. No, I don't know how it all became orchestrated that we were all there, but it was. 
really does feel like the womb. It feels like a mother energy, the womb. And I think you had mentioned that the females were the wisdom keepers on this, and I would agree with that because um, I've gotten most of my um, good advice from Susan and most of, a lot of things I learned from you and, uh, and um, Kimberly and another woman. And there was another woman who was a psychic that, uh, that was talking about Kincaid dying up in Idaho, possibly. Yep. It's all but been a lot of women have been involved in this. So I think well, there's a lot of female energy in it. I can remember that uh, in all cultures, you know, the woman obviously was all, always present because how we're designed on this planet, we wouldn't be here. But she's not really recorded, so to speak. Except You're right. In certain instances, historically speaking, there's a lot of knowledge that was never recorded from the woman. And yeah. a lot of people, yeah, you're right. Go but ahead. But then when we have these memories, you know, like I said, like the, for me, the blanket of Tibet just wraps me, and I, you know, there's a lot of emotion. There's a, a lot of stuff for me in it. And even with the Native American and the Hopi, it's just always been there surrounding me. It doesn't mean that I was here to, in this incarnation to be an active participant in those cultures because I wasn't born into them. But I do feel that there's something running through me that connects me to them. When I, when I was at the New Mexico Rainbow Gathering, this is something that's been misinterpreted all over the Internet, but I was there, so I know what, what uh, Grandfather um, David actually said. He, he said a quote there that has been misinterpreted all over the place on the Internet, and I was right there next to him when he said it. Hmm. He said he was, um, but he was laughing and laughing at our dancing. We were, we were basically all of us dancing naked around the campfire, a bunch of rainbow people. Or with feathers on, or whatever you know, and there were there were Buddhist priests there. There were, I mean, there were monks and and there were everyone from all over the world dancing because of World Peace Gathering. This was back in I think 1978 or something. They had on the uh, in in the Gila Wilderness there, and um, he was there and he said that uh, that that in according to the Hopi prophecies, the next Indians. This is exactly how he said it. He said the next Indians would be the sons of the white men and daughters, sons and daughters of the white men. And he was t- and he, then he said, "This is you." He actually said that to us, hmm. and he was pointing, looking at teepees and looking at people with feathers in their hair and gypsies, basically like I was back then. Hmm. And he was saying that, and um, that, and that, uh, that statement has been I've seen it misinterpreted on the internet uh, all over the place, you know. But I was right there, so I know what he meant, and so it felt feels natural to me to be involved with the cave, you know. Because he said that. And then later on, when I went to Hopi Land years later, um, I was on the second mesa, and they were doing the ceremony I was talking about. I was sitting there, and I just glanced. I felt something on the back of my neck. I turned around, and he was smiling at me because I think he remembered me from from the uh, the, the rainbow gathering. That's what it felt like, you know? Right. But I considered that was like a blessing that I was allowed to be there when he looked at me, you know? Definitely. And I didn't feel special or anything. I just felt like... Well, I, you know, I'm involved with the cave, so he's happy I'm here. You know? We all do have a role, and and just to honor that, you know, acknowledgement and and understanding, non-spoken understanding, I think is really powerful. When you were at the Rainbow Gathering, and he said that to you, the, the misinterpretation I've seen was that uh, he said that the next Indians would be the sons of the white men, and they're still waiting for them to appear, kind of people. Right. But he said it specifically. To us, when we were there dancing, you know, right, and and we just took it naturally because you know that's basically what we were. We were 
combination of uh, like Indians and uh, you know some of us have a little blood like I do, but we were basically gypsies, Indians, hippies, whatever you know, living in buses and things and traveling around for several years and have had been away from society and become. I, I got to a point where I had actually uh, was in Utah at Zion Park and left my body and had an experience that frightened me a bit and I lo- saw myself objectively and I thought you better get to a city and ground yourself and get a job you know because <laughs> you're, you're too far out there so I went and was um, I never got would get a normal job but I was making tombstones I've I've done that you know and I've done the artwork on gravestones right and uh, that grounded me somewhat and I felt like I need to be grounded for a while you know because I. I just got so far out there that I was at the point where I just stuck my thumb out and said, wherever this ride takes me is where I'm going. Wow. And I ended up in Utah with a real mystical experience. Yeah, Zion will do that. Yeah, Zion's cool. Huge portal there. (laughs) So in other words, all that was was about saying that I think he was right in saying that at the specific time for what was going on. In other words, this was one of the things that was going to happen and then there's the iron horse thing, which I'm sure Kimberly has talked to you about, right? That the um, when the iron horses have wheels, there's a Tibetan prophecy that goes something like, when the iron horses have wheels, the east will meet the west, or something. And then the then the hope we have one when the iron horses have wheels, the west will meet the east, kind of thing. And that's they consider that that when uh, the the monks came out and met them several years ago on the hope. Again, we get down to the semantics of physics. The Dalai Lama came and met the Hopis. And not that it wasn't ceremonial and profound, but I'm just wondering, because this cave, I feel like, transported worlds. So you could go from there to Tibet. You could go through many worlds at that location. And and so really is, was it in that moment where the East met the West, or is it when we have that full understanding and can embody that concept. It's one thing for us to talk about, but when we fully embody that the East can meet the West in a moment, in a flash, and we we see it happening, we feel it, we experience it, is that when the prophecy or, you know, is that when the evolution occurs? That's very insightful on your part because I think it would relate to um, possibly the end of war and conflicts and everything. If we can truly truly meet each other and realize that we're all one, you know. Right. That could be the that could be the ultimate message of all this. That that, that we are all one and that we see all these different cultures and yet uh look look at the Hopi and the and the Tibetans are, are one there, you know. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of the message. And all my life I've been anti war and, and, and uh, for the one you know uh for world peace and people getting along, you know, which is no accident I don't think that I've thought like that and got involved in this story, you know. If you got a multi uh multi religious cave here, you know. That <laughs> that's saying the same thing too, you know. Multi religious and multi dimensional. It's beautiful yeah. juxtaposition of realities. <laughs> and what better place for it to be uh the lesson to come out of than the Grand Canyon that everyone notices the Grand Canyon. Yep. So they're gonna go, Whoa, wait a minute, you know, this happened in the Grand Canyon? then it must mean something. All right, Jack. Well, thank you so much. You're amazing. And I honor and bow to you for uh, taking on this project and bringing it here to all of us. That's so interesting, you know. And thank you, too. I appreciate everything you're doing. 
I want to thank Jack again for his commitment to holding these caves so sacred and with the intent to really honor the Hopi and respect this underworld. I also want to ask all the listeners that might be enticed by a great adventure to really sit back and connect with Mother Earth, connect with this location, and tune into its significance. As I've connected deeper and deeper with these caves, it is a very sacred chamber in my mind's eye and in my heart, and I feel it's here to offer us a remembrance of the past and the possibility of our future by bringing in compassion and love in our heart, reconnecting with the power of the universal mother and father, exploring a new conversation and a new reality that we all have the potential to co-create. I look forward to the journey. Thanks again, Jack, and thank you all for listening. I love you, and until the next time, this is Suzanne Toro signing out. Namaste. Namaste.